what I'm trying to do by showing, you know, the kind of golden age of industry and the golden age of American capitalism in this light is to take it out from the from behind those parentheses of like the idea of a kind of, you know, a great exception or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because if it's sealed between parentheses like that, that's going to trap us in this thing where like class is something that used to exist and doesn't exist anymore. And instead, the thing I want to say is like, actually, classes are always in these kind of composite heterogeneous uneven and contradictory formations, which then like lay down historical institutional deposits that then the next generation of class formation has to navigate its way through. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, pre-order or order Health Communism or request it at your local library. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, um, the book is out tomorrow, Tuesday, October 18th. And of course, you can always follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, Phil and I are joined by Gabe Winant, assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, who is here today to talk about his book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. Gabe, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you join us, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. Thank you for having me. It's great to join you also, and congratulations on your imminent book release. Thank you. I mean, I feel like our books pair together quite well, actually, and um, it was such a pleasure reading yours. Um, The Next Shift is your first book, and it's a fantastic and incredibly rich and detailed piece of history. It's kind of a case study looking at the city of Pittsburgh, and you trace how the working class, particularly steelworkers and then healthcare workers, are consistently extracted from and exploited, even in moments that people tend to sort of look back on as some kind of golden age of worker power. And there's so much in here that we want to get into today, but I was hoping that you could start us off by talking about sort of how this book came to be, why you chose to focus on Pittsburgh, how this fits into your body of work um, overall, and what the argument you're making here is. Sure. Uh, okay, that's a lot. So I'll try to I'll try to do it without droning on for too too long. <laughs> um, you know, this book really originated for me as a kind of journey, I guess, from a sort of what I think of as a more vulgar economistic Marxism into, uh, <laughs> let's say, what I would think of as a more sophisticated Marxism. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm a, I am a kind of classic millennial Marxist. I graduated college in 2008. You know, everything was crashing around me. I was sort of becoming radicalized in that moment, you know, with some precursors, you know, in the Iraq war protests and stuff like Howard Dean and stuff like that. Um, One of us. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and so I was interested, I became interested through that experience in, you know, economic uh, inequality. Uh, you know, I come from a left-wing family with some, you know, deeper kind of Jewish socialist labor movement stuff. So I had some resources for kind of starting to think about that on my own. I did my PhD at Yale and the experience of, I grew up in Philadelphia, the experience of growing up in Philly, living in New Haven, combined with that kind of moment, ideological moment, um, is the kind of like secret history of the book, I guess, because one, just as a kind of social and practical matter, right? Cities like Philadelphia and like New Haven and like the city I eventually wrote about Pittsburgh 
uh, all tell a story about their own processes of deindustrialization and then economic recovery. That's about, yeah. you know, post-industrial, high-skill industries that employ young creatives and professionals, you know, who can move back and turn old factories into lofts. <laughs> so, right? This is a very familiar story, obviously. Um, yeah. In New, here in New Haven, um, Yale and Yale Hospital are at the center of that. And, you know, it just seemed like, looking around, I could see that. I mean, it's not that that story is untrue. Like I was an example of that. Right. But right. you can also see that there are these thousands of other people who seem mm-hmm. tied up with these institutions um, in all kinds of ways as workers, but also as, you know, tenants, as patients at their medical institutions, as uh, people being pushed out of their neighborhoods by gentrification, as people being, you know, harassed or whose kids are being harassed by cops employed by these institutions. Um, and as, as I became politically involved, first in graduate student unionism and then in other kinds of political activity in New Haven, uh, I became more and more able to see uh, that there was a much more complex sort of social landscape of inequality, you know, class inequality, racial inequality, persistent and reinvented forms of gender inequality um, in the post-industrial city than the kind of commonly available story. So that was what was sort of going on in my life, which was you know, absolutely essential to my intellectual trajectory. And then alongside that, right, there was this kind of, I think, quite familiar story about how, you know, Marxism had kind of gone into a phase of major retreat and kind of, to some extent, discredit from, you know, maybe the late 80s or early 90s up until the 2008 financial crisis. Class as a category of analysis had been, you know, abandoned by many or called into very widespread question. I remember... um, Early in grad school, I was at an academic conference and I met a senior scholar and I said, oh, I just said a grad school and doing labor history. And he said to me, labor history, they're still making that. <laughs> um, God, they lost the, and, the class. People lost those debates. Those are over. Yeah, we don't right. need those anymore. We're post right. post class. Right. Um, and it's, it's funny because there's sort of two senses of that question, right? Like, are they still making it in the sense of is anyone still studying that? Is that still a field of producing? And also like. Is, is it being made? still happening in the world? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, that led me to think that, um, and, you know, the versions of class analysis that were available and that I had internalized up to that point were kind of cr- pretty uh, economistic ones that were pretty focused on uh, the experience of the, the kind of classic experience of the industrial proletariat. And we can talk more about that, you know, questions about economic reductionism or something if you're interested. But uh, I quickly started to think that there was a problem here of the kind of classic instance or prime example of historical materialism becoming conflated with its kind of more abstract categories. Mm. And, you know, that's understandable why that happened. I think it's not that hard why why that would have occurred intellectually. But what what it meant was that you know, when Winchester repeating arms here in New Haven closed, by which it used to employ 15,000 people, and the university and the hospital became by far the largest employers, it seemed to obviate the category at a higher level of abstraction itself, right? And as that happened globally, obviously, right? It seemed to invalidate the kind of terms of analysis rather than just indicate a kind of new episode in a sequence. Right. And that's not to say that every working class formation is identical to every other one. There are important material differences that we want to understand. But I had some recognition from being in New Haven, having grown up in Philly, that, you know, we it might be useful to try to understand, like, the specificity 
of distinct moments of working class formation or class composition as, you know, episodes in a kind of sort of sequential pulsating cycle, um, each of which has their distinct characteristics. And if we could do that, then it would be possible to show how they still are making labor history. Um, <laughs> so that was really where the project originated. I decided to work on Pittsburgh. Well, I guess one more thing I'll say finally is that about that is um, it seemed to me like that what that meant was that I would have to tell a story in which deindustrialization was the middle of the story rather than the beginning yeah. of the Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so that I would not be kind of holding too fixed any, you know, I think of it as like, it's the second half of the life of one episode and the first half of the life of another episode. It's the middle, which most people miss in in most stories, right? It's it's actually the most important part. Yeah. So I chose to work on Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh just seemed like a really good kind of stand in for a lot of this in various ways. You know, it was so specialized in steel um, that it felt like it'd be possible by studying one industry to study like the working class not as a whole, but like a lot of it in in the industrial period. And, you know, that in turn had generated a huge archive of material I could draw on, um, you know, about the steel industry and the kind of social world of the steel industry. And then, you know, by the same token, uh, it turned out to have this huge healthcare sector. Um, This is all very symbolically kind of neatly represented in the fact that um, U.S. Steel Tower, the tallest building on the skyline, built in the 60s, the largest tenant now is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And so um, you know, they took USS off the top of the building and put UPMC there up on top of the whole city to say, like, look who's in charge now. Um, so, you know, I just thought, like, I could I could capture a lot of it through that city's experience. Yeah, I actually will say that, you know, I, I came to this book first as a Pittsburgher. Right. And I was I was actually sort of surprised that you weren't from Pittsburgh as I was reading it because the sort of it's so rich and it's so like contextually specific that you're not just talking about Pittsburgh itself, but for anybody who knows the region, it's the city. And then all of the outlying municipalities where the steel is actually sort of like made in different parts of the like the production process. Um, but I came to this book and I think the reason why your argument in it sort of resonated with me was one, I grew up um, in Pittsburgh outside of the city. My mom was a nurse um, first at Montefiore uh, she was in the cardiac unit and then at Jefferson, which is outside of the city. And she had been repeatedly, uh, you know, her unit, they, they tried to organize um, a labor union and uh, had failed like multiple times. And the arguments and the way that uh, union busting had occurred really like resonated with me in, in the way that you tell it um, in the book and the way that like social obligations are sort of u- leveraged by by employers as a way of of, of demobilizing um, unions. But I think the, the other thing that resonated with me about it, which is that I grew up in Pittsburgh and then I left for a while, you know, close to a decade and came back for a postdoc in 2015, working in Scaife Hall, like right in the heart of UPMC. And, uh, when I got back, I, you know, came back to a very different city, obviously, like it, it was clear how much like the medical, sector had remade the city, but also came back in this really weird moment in time when the biggest industry in town was also this incredibly, like on the one hand, only survived because of having this huge underclass of workers. And uh, you begin the book by talking about how UPMC was claiming back then that it had no employees, but in its Mm -hmm. national labor relations board filing. Um, But at the same time that it only sort of survived because of these really um, like specific uh, economic conditions that were always sort of 
seem like in, in the process of breaking down, like the destructive force of, of capitalism seemed ever present. When I got to Pittsburgh in 2015, this is when UPMC was in this turf war with, with the insurer Highmark, which was buying up hospitals. And the sale of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette was briefly banned in UPMC gift shops and cafeterias uh, right. because of its, it was like, <laughs> its coverage was critical. At one what? point, my, one, of my, one of my favorite cartoonists, <laughs> Rob Rogers, uh, this great cartoonist who was later fired from the Post-Gazette, he had a cartoon depicting the CEO of UPMC as like an ISIS, like in a beheading video. Um, and it was like, I don't, I can't so find that cartoon anymore. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, so we were like, you know, there was like a gag order, like you couldn't talk to the Post-Gazette. It was, it was a really weird time, but it really brought home to me like something that I, I found in, in your argument, which is that like, okay, over time, the story I had been told about Pittsburgh my entire childhood was that my childhood, I was in the midst of this huge renaissance, right? Which was very boho, you know, the, the artist lofts, you know, uh, you know, this is the Richard Florida thing. But really, <laughs> it was evident, like, even by the fact that there was the largesse to hire me as a postdoc, right? That this was actually, in fact, the result of of medical sector. But at the same time, what this transition had produced was an enormous amount of wealth uh, for the region, which was, you know, emblematic in all of the nonprofits and the foundations and the, you know, uh, big hospital complex that would always seem to be building something new and consolidating uh, its control of smaller hospitals throughout the throughout all of Western Pennsylvania, really. And at the same time, there was this huge class of people that I grew up with, uh, their parents being really low paid and poorly treated uh, employees of this gigantic octopus like system. And your book sort of talks about in a way, like how that came to be, which, you know, the second way I approached the book was as somebody who studies health policy at a moment, you know, and, and it came of, you know, intellectual age, I think at the same time you did in political science, when the way that you studied health policy is like somehow not talking about class and capitalism, like not talking about economic structure. And then ultimately you get arguments like, oh, gee, why is it like hard to do like universal uh, health care? Like why is, you know, and, and you get these really like inane institutionalist kind of arguments. But I think by returning to kind of the, the roots of like class formation and illustrating the process, like you actually do get to see something that um, I think like traditional political science often, often misses. Um, and so I, I guess I wonder, you know, if you could actually get into talking about the, the argument you make in the book. I mean, in a way you're sort of saying, and, you know, I, I think I, I like to tell people about your book in, in political science. I'm like, well, if you really want to understand the history of the healthcare regime in the United States, you have to understand like steel. And they're like, what? Um, <laughs> can you can you talk about sort of the, the sort of the, the basics of your argument, how we go from this uh, economy in the region, uh, Western Pennsylvania, based around steelmaking to to healthcare? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for saying all that, Phil. Very gratifying to hear. Um, so the kind of core argument of the book is that a set of political compromises arise out of the class struggles in manufacturing, in the case of Pittsburgh Steel, to kind of stabilize class relations in the post-war period in that industry, which then have a set of kind of knock-on consequences for the healthcare industry, particularly as those political compromises interact with the industrialization. Um, so let me break that down a little bit. 
steel industry gets organized like all of American mass production, basically in the 30s by the CIO, you know, in the kind of moment of industrial workers upsurge. And then in the late 40s, after the war, the industrial union movement kind of encounters the Cold War, right? And it has to kind of negotiate its place in Cold War American society. It's a complicated, complex process involving, you know, conflict and compromise and repression and various things. Um, one element of that is the question of what the post-war welfare state is going to, how it's going to be organized. You know, historically, the labor movement has stood for, up to this point, the expansion of the socialization of welfare in various ways, including medicine. Uh, and Harry Truman tries to do this, does not succeed, right? And there's a key moment when the industrial unions watch Truman struggling in D.C. and think, you know what, this doesn't seem like it's going to work. And we don't really have the <laughs> really have the political power anymore to deliver on something like this, like as, as a labor movement. So let's kind of withdraw from the fray. We'll leave Harry hanging a little bit. And um, although we don't have that kind of political power anymore, we still have an enormous amount of economic power. We can still really grind our industry to a halt. So let's do that and try to win these welfare benefits in the private sector through collective bargaining rather than in the public sector through public policy. And so basically between 1949 48, 49, and like 51, 52, all the CIO unions pretty much, uh, you know, negotiate different, these different kinds of private health plans, you know, often through Blue Cross. Uh, the miners actually set up their own hospital system in Appalachia. And there's different kinds of experiments. But basically, you get around the industrial union movement, the consolidation of employment-based healthcare, which like has not been a norm up until mm -hmm. this time. And it, there's a couple of steel industry federal court cases where, uh, so-called fringe benefits, meaning healthcare and pensions, are decided to be a so-called mandatory subject of collective bargaining. That's to say, if you have a recognized union, your employer must negotiate on these subjects with you, or they're violating the law. So there, you know, the result of this is this kind of infamous public-private welfare state that that organized labor builds. Uh, you know, not totally of its own volition, right? It's an effect in part of repression and defeat, but that organized labor builds over the course of the post-war period. These benefits get better and better and better with each contract cycle. By the end of the 50s, the steelworkers are um, like they're contributing zero dollars to their premiums. And I think it's helpful to think of that as in terms of like islands of economic security, mm -hmm. very large very large islands, especially in places like Pittsburgh, um, right? Because there's, you know, I mean, in 1950, steel workers are about a fifth of the labor market in Pittsburgh. And then, you know, their families are also covered by these programs, their legal dependents, their wives, their children, sometimes others. So uh, there are these islands. But the important thing also to understand about these islands is that they're connected to the rest of the working class in various ways, even as they're also kind of stratified out from them. So for one thing, I just alluded to wives, right? And like the one thing that the post-war compromise allows for is the solidification of the family wage. This is, you know, we all know this story somewhat, but this is the kind of elementary form of the kind of overall care arrangements that the working class is, is going to get uh, reproduced through. So, you know, once you have economic security in some form for industrial workers, that also implies and depends upon in various ways unwaged reproductive labor by their wives, which involves all kinds of care functions, including health, like, you know, non-acute healthcare functions, right? I mean, women do a huge amount of like low level chronic healthcare provision, even women who have no healthcare training. That's a longstanding feature of, of you know, modern society. Um, but then I think to return to the welfare state question, um, 
you know, that same principle kind of holds in a broader way. So if you think about like, what is health insurance? It's a sort of a coupon, right? Um, <laughs> for, or like a voucher. Um, it's a kind of income, but income that you can only spend at one place or one kind of place. And that kind of place, that's say a hospital, especially in mid 20th century, but even down to the present is very labor intensive. So like a lot of what your health insurance dollar is going to buy is uh, in fact, the wages and attention of the people who work at the hospital and the people who work at the hospital are not on the island of security, right? right. They are uh, not covered by labor law. They're not legally employees for purposes of collective bargaining, for purposes of like the minimum wage until the 60s. Um, they're hired from the most marginal sectors of the labor market, which means that they're women. In Pittsburgh, it means that they're black very disproportionately. Elsewhere, it would be more immigrants. And so uh, that's important to understand because what it means is that the island thing, right, the private provision of economic security to sections of the working class both stratifies the working class and also establishes an indirect relationship of exploitation within the working class. You know, that's not like steelworkers become the capitalist class, but their reproduction is organized around and through insecure labor, right? Um, yeah. So that is all that, like the kind of, uh, in some ways, the setup. <laughs> And then the question then becomes, what happens when deindustrialization strikes an economy, a labor market, and a class organized around steelwork in this kind of way? And basically, the population gets older and poorer and sicker. And this attachment that and I can break down those categories more. We can talk about more, more about all of them. But um, this attachment to private sector benefits and private sector health provision becomes a kind of economic lifeline. So even as you know the economy is contracting in general, even as kind of the means of social reproduction are kind of falling into crisis in a variety of ways, for a set of reasons that we should probably talk more about, the health insurance dollar kind of keeps pumping and in fact kind of expands. And so a generalized experience of worsening socioeconomic distress turns into the form of patient demand for healthcare. Yeah, a problem becomes a solution uh for the, or you know a good thing for um this burgeoning uh industry. Like even as all of the other social benefits the government provides like recede, um it's like I it's this is like the catch-all way of dealing with every social problem that uh, deindustrialization and capitalism like meets out. It's like, well, we'll just solve it through this uh, you know, this process that actually happens to produce a lot of profits. Right, exactly. Um, and in that way, I know you just had Ruthie Gilmore on. In that way, I think it's quite, it's not identical to, but it's quite parallel to the way that mass incarceration is also a solution to, um, you know, the end of Fordism. But the, the last thing I'll say is just like, as that happens, obviously the healthcare labor market expands, right? But it doesn't expand like in a vacuum. It expands in this particular institutional context in which it's, structurally and institutionally positioned on the margin of the economy, which the labor has been kind of unprotected and unregulated until the 60s and 70s, and in, in which it, you know, hires from the most marginal layers of the working class. And so those are the kind of particular conditions that then define healthcare work as it grows. Yeah, I really appreciated the the way that you also did not sort of stand up a, an abstract cardboard cutout of like the worker, and you really engaged with the fact that in terms of like the kind of intimate social reproductive labor that was required to sustain the kind of work being done, you know, the kind of 
extraction of both like time from people who are working in steel mills, but, uh, you know, the debility and maiming and injury that was really just sort of taken as a given. You know, this is a population where not only, you know, is there a concentration in industry and this kind of as you're saying, there's a kind of like these these two separate groups that get created socially where you have those like who can benefit from collective bargaining and those excluded from collective bargaining and sort of how that plays not towards the benefit of workers, but towards the benefit of uh, managers who are essentially trying to sort of set up these class barriers and distinctions within their own workforce. But, you know, one of the things that I appreciate that you did here is is you really tried to bring in some some of the perspectives that are left um, out of the archive often and left out of these stories, right? We sort of hear these stories in terms of like this heroic uh, sort of like manly labor force that like goes into the steel mill and is like totally fine with like watching their coworkers get like ripped in half or maimed or burned alive and these kinds of like horrific things that are happening as a result of not just like the inherent danger of the work, but specific decisions about how these plants are going to be run and where that productivity increase that's sort of expected of the industry is going to come from instead of doing sort of investments in machinery or production capacities, you know, we're ex- sort of expecting to squeeze out extra productivity from the workers themselves. And so this also creates a population that has higher healthcare needs, you know, at, at a baseline. And it's happening at a moment where, you know, a lot of the care for people who would be then injured or disabled to the point of not being a worker anymore, that that care, uh, you know, especially in the 30s and 40s, like a lot of that care is happening funded by the state in state hospitals, in institutions and asylums. And so it's an interesting sort of picture also of how as those sites are also having you know, facing extreme austerity and you're seeing like a lot of pressure to, you know, roll back the funding that are going into these institutions, which is resulting in like, you know, worse and worse staff ratios, more abuse of patients and residents than ever before. You you have this moment where the burden sort of shifts onto the family and also the idea of what a hospital is transforms from a kind of place where someone maybe goes to die or is uh, sent for 30, 40 years to something that's more of like a kind of cyclical experience. And part of this is obviously accelerated um, in the mid-60s because of the funding models of Medicare and Medicaid really shifting that. But also what you have in the 30s, 40s, and 50s is the idea of the hospital as a site of care, not just sort of an almshouse or a poorhouse really coming into existence. And it's, I think, really important to, to be thinking about also like sort of the physical toll that was required in order for that shift to happen and how that sort of plays out in communities, not just in terms of the injuries that the workers were experiencing, but the way that the industry shapes the environment and the social determinants of all the people living in the community. And so I really appreciated the way that you were bringing in you know, things like people's diaries and trying to bring in perspectives of black workers who are really, you know, being sort of the first uh, to be fired or let go and the first to be sort of facing the worst effects of the kind of drive for austerity through like trying to increase profitability or whatever, you know. And and I think the the idea of sort of the problem being that simply we sort of ran into this issue of like, 
wages were too high, prices were too high, you know, we hit inflation, and then we sort of have this moment where the steel industry kind of bottoms out is 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 often how it's talked about. And that really kind of removes like the actual people who, you know, are making this through their like blood and sweat. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think that we had, there's an idea of deindustrialization as a kind of sudden snap, uh, basically in 1979 and then into the 80s, which allows us to preserve a kind of hazy golden age image of the years before, right? Like, yeah. um, if only Paul Volcker had, you know, not done that or something like that. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, I think there's a kind of interesting contradiction here because, of course, it is true that steelworker wages and pensions and health benefits did increase all through the post-war period, but they were going to fewer and fewer people. And I think that fact is very often missed. You know, they're just like these constant churns, first of all, of cyclical layoffs, especially in the 50, uh, 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Uh, and then again in the 70s, the 60s are a little different, uh, like late 60s. Uh, you know, there's periodic strikes, which often leave people without wages for months at a time. There are There's the kind of ever-present risk of sickness and injury and death on the job. And then there is the kind of like secular decline of employment year over year in the industry, which is counteracted by occasional cyclical upturns, especially in the late 60s. But overall, is the trend is down. And so what that means is that the idea that we have of a kind of post-war golden age, which just gets kind of unfortunately truncated or interrupted at the end of the 70s, misrepresents the experience of even like the most, often the most kind of, you know, secure and well off right. of blue collar workers, much less, you know, as you said, ones who are kind of racialized and on the margin, you know, on the racialized margin of the labor market or, you know, more vulnerable to, you know, injury and death. Um, I tell a story in the book. I opened the first chapter actually with this story of a welder at Homestead Works. Um, this is a guy I met um, and he told me how when he first got his job, which you know, his father had also worked there. And so he got this you know, skilled trade job, white guy in the skilled trades. That's the top of the occupational hierarchy. When he first got this job, uh, he would bring his lunch to work in a brown paper bag, you know, a sandwich. And there wasn't like a fridge you could leave it in. You just sort of find somewhere to tuck it until it's right. time to eat it. Uh, and rats would eat it because, um, you know, it was in a brown paper bag and the steel mill is this giant, semi-enclosed, semi-exposed, very warm, filthy riverside environment. It's full of rats. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, the older guy said, yeah, you got to get, a, you know, one of these steel pails like we have. That's why we have these. Uh, but Howard, this guy's name is Howard. Uh, Howard didn't want to do that. And he kept bringing his lunch and paper bag and kept losing them to rats for week, like days or weeks. I can't remember. Because... Getting the pail meant that he was staying in this job. Yeah. And when he told me, he told me that as if, as if it was nothing, but it really, you know, it really stuck with me. Even now, 10 years later, I remember my reaction to him saying that um, because it's so at odds with the idea that we have of what these jobs were like. So like, right. Like someone even at the kind of top of this, in, of the internal hierarchy of this workplace, um, you know, who was, earning hourly something that most hourly workers today would not hope, you know, could not hope to earn related to this job as basically a site of intense fear. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think this is actually very, you know, it's nice in the historiography to have this idea of the, what Jeff Cowie calls like the great exception, right. This, this moment in time when you have this, you know, uh, 
like by a lot of measures, by a lot of abstracted sort of measures, it is a time where you see union density sort of at its highest point and, and, you know, arguably like, you know, collectively speaking labor, you know, there, there's no point where it has more collective uh, power, but I think what you do is you actually illustrate what it is like, even like let, let's put in context what that power really means. Like let's not in a way uh, over, over glamorize uh, or overestimate uh, what the arrangement worked out during the new deal was. And I, I the way that you put it um, and a line that I really liked is steel workers generally feared for their lives, hated their foreman and needed a drink, um, which is, you know, ni- nicely illustrative of, I think that the complicated relationship that, you know, people two generations uh, before mine who I, you know, uh, grandparents, great uncles and things like that, who, who worked in the mill is like, yeah, it was a great job. And yeah, I do now have a great pension as a result of it and better healthcare, you know, maybe than a, a lot of other people, you know, of my generation, but at the same time, um, it was also, you know, brutalizing, um, a lot, you know, and, um, and in a way did entail a lot of unseen, uh, labor to just, just deal with the, the collateral consequences of, of that work. Yeah. And let me just say a word about um, what I think the analytical payout of trying to see it this way is, because it's not just a humanistic move from my perspective. I mean, it's important. No, no, not at all. There's a, yeah. But I think, um, you know, if we, what I'm trying to do by showing, you know, the kind of golden age of industry and the golden age of American capitalism in this light is to take it out from the, from behind those parentheses of like the idea of a kind of, you know, great exception or whatever, Mm -hmm. because if it's sealed between parentheses like that, then uh, that's going to trap us in this thing where like class is something that used to exist and doesn't exist anymore because there's no passage, there's sort of no passage of like historical transmission between then and now. And instead, the thing I want to say is like, actually classes are always in these kind of composite heterogeneous, uneven and contradictory formations, which then like lay down historical institutional deposits that then the next generation of class formation has to navigate its way through um, the kind of legacy of victories and defeats from the previous one. And if we let it be in those parentheses, then we can't actually make sense of any of the kind of specifics of um, those legacies, good and bad and complex that that we inherit from from that moment. I really appreciate the way that you're putting that because I I think it's so, it's so important to not exceptionalize this, this moment because it's, I, I feel like so often when you when you hear, especially now, people sort of make arguments for how, for example, like union, like increased union density that we're seeing now is this kind of you know great return or something like that. I think it it often the the romanticization of that that period and and the sort of changes that occurred there really hides all of this like hidden work that's going into maintaining the bodies of workers. Right. And I think you make this very clear in the second chapter where you talk about the social reproductive labor involved in like maintaining the bodies of workers. And I, I loved that you cited um, 
one of my favorite people to hate, Talcott Parsons, who, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he has this sort of idea that, you know, uh, that somehow social reproductive labor has become easier, you know, because of automation, because of like household machines, you know, that women just be shopping now. And it's all, you know, it's all good. And that, you know, housework is hardly any work at all. And I think, you know, what, what is really obvious is not just that this like sort of uh, a very intimate portrait of of what life was like for workers offers like a kind of, you know, tangible, you know, humanistic perspective or whatever. But it also really like breaks down this myth that that this work was sort of happening through the inherent like strength of these like male bodies of these these romanticized workers, because I think that's like often the perspective and and. If you look back at, you know, certain scholarship that deals with like some of the early, you know, some of the early experiments that certain unions were doing, like I'm thinking of the Brotherhood of uh, Railway Workers who, you know, in, in the 1800s, they start experimenting to with providing like long term care for their you know, for the members of their brotherhood. And they ultimately decide that it's too expensive and they can't do it. And, you know, there's all these moments where there are sort of attempts to socialize or uh, share the kind of social reproductive labor of taking care of people who are injured by this work, who are, um, you know, left, whether that's through pollution and sort of growing up like in the shadow of the steel mill or through the actual work itself, you know, just their lives are, um, you know, they're consigned to slow death, to put it, you know, in the Berlantian terms, you know, the, the kind of shortness of life that's resulting from the exposure to these kinds of hazards, both like workplace and in the environment. And it's sort of like always framed like, oh, you know, these big, strong workers, you know, and they're big, strong unions, and we want all these wonderful victories. And it it just hides all of the work that that goes into like preparing the body for work. And you make that so evident talking about, you know, the kind of 24 hour cycle of intergenerational families who are living kind of this in this promised age that we talk about, you know, is so wonderful (laughs) or that is abstracted and romanticized by motherfuckers like Parsons who who say, you know, and everything's great now because we've got automatic washing machines. But, you know, the the fact of the matter is, is that what essentially happens is that these 24 hour production cycles and the, the pressures on workers that are, you know, made that they don't like stay within the bounds of the factory, that they sort of like bleed out into life and end up influencing and shaping the way the rest of the entire community organizes their own labor, their own lives and their own sociality. Yeah. Um, I think that's really well said, you know, I, I, I sort of came to see this in many different forms in many different guises. I think the, one of the first moments of recognition of it that I really had um, was in reading or hearing, I can't remember where I first encountered this, but someone saying or describing the way that housewives in post-war mill towns would have to know what all of the different whistles and sirens and, you know, like noises from the mill meant in terms of what was going to come out of the smokestack. Right. So so that they would know uh, whether or not they had to get the laundry down from the line. And, you know, that's like in some ways a small seeming thing. Right. But it takes you right into this world uh, that you're describing of the intense domination of routine Mm -hmm. uh, by and through the making ready of the body for the work of production. Right. And then I started to just kind of see it every in all of these ways. Right. That, you know, as you say, because the mills run 24 hours a day, it means that 
uh, often, I mean, that means that two thirds of shifts, two thirds of workers at any given time are um, not working the eight to four shift, right? But which is like the kind of normal work day, but are doing either four to 12 or 12 to eight. And that means that their wives are going to have to both like raise their families on a kind of like, quote, like more normal daily routine, right? Like kids have to get to school, have to have lunch, you know, meals at normal times, their laundry has to get done, whatever. Someone has to pay attention to them. Um, and at the same time, have to take care of their husbands who are on these other cycles. And the wife's job is just to kind of like hold this together by making two dinners instead of one. They don't have microwaves, right? Um, and by like keeping the kids quiet during the day because their dad is sleeping. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, Often when, you know, he comes home from the mill, he stopped at a bar and had a drink because like, that's a very important way for steel workers to like discharge the trauma of the daily routine. I mean, it's like, that's, you know, they wouldn't describe it that way, but it's like pretty clear that that's sort of what's going on. It's a, it's a very stressful experience to do a shift in a mill where you think you might die. Well, and if you, if you like work odd hours, if you work these kinds of hours, like, I mean, and you see this like in contemporary examples in like the service industry, right? Like, and you get off work at 2 a.m., like the only place that's open is the bar. It's like the the hub of sociality for, for right. so many people. Right. And so that's why steel, steel mill bar, I mean, there's kind of a ring of bars right around the mill. And, you know, the shift that ends at eight in the morning, the bar is open for them. Yeah. My grandparents' bar was open at 7 a.m. Yep. Well, I think- they open, they, I think you weren't allowed to maybe serve alcohol until eight. So they would like people come in and drink coffee at seven and then beer <laughs> at eight. Right. So, uh, you know, then like th those guys go home and their wives, you know, like have to deal with them and they're like mad and pissed off and humiliated and maybe drunk. And, you know, the wives have to deal with them, get them fed, get them to bed, shut the kids up, uh, you know, maybe like scrub the industrial grease out of the out of the husband's clothes and you know are you going to run run the washing machine even though running his clothes in the washing machine is going to degrade the washing machine faster and you have to scrape this you know industrial silt out of the bottom of it after you do it but it's easier maybe than scrubbing it by hand on and on like this right um and it's their job not just to do all of that but also to make it all feel like it's kind of working because families uh, I mean, they're emotionally and psychologically important in whatever configuration they might take, but they're also um, politically mandatory, basically. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, right. As we, I said a few minutes ago, like this is the point of access that people have to economic citizenship is through the family relation. Um, and so you can't not be in one. Um, or you can, but you're, you'll consign yourself to, you know, social marginalization. And so uh, that means that they both have to kind of do all of the material stuff that like all the family members require of, you know, the wife and mother, but also the kind of, you know, I know there's a controversy about using the term emotional labor in this context, but the emotional labor of like holding it all together, like you really actually do have to try to put on a good show. You do have to make people feel like it's working and like it's all, it's all you know, it's kind of seamless and happy because like it is sort of important structurally or materially that your family venture seems like it's succeeding. And, you know, I, this was not something I realized I was going to kind of get into at the beginning of this project, but it just came through so clearly in so many sources, how many women have these stories of like, or like we'll talk explicitly in various kinds of records about like, you know, Oh yeah. My husband is often an asshole to me in one way or another. He's drunk. Sometimes he yells, he breaks things, drives me crazy, but you know, I don't say anything because it just, it's easier not to say anything. 
And there's just a million kind of versions of that sentiment all over the records that I, I found in different ways. And that's sort of what made me think like, oh, these people are participating in this kind of mandatory set of behaviors. Sure. Right. I, I sort of wonder also if like, one significant reason to talk about this is to actually have a fuller understanding of what the political economy of the quote unquote great exception, you know, uh, mid-century uh, American industrial uh, metropolis uh, looks like, right? You have to talk about the steel mill, but you also have to talk about the home and the bar. Um, but I also sort of wonder if, if one function or one reason to focus on the work of the home and the and all of the unpaid pre-commodified, I guess we would say, care work that's going on is that that sense of obligation, right, of mandatoriness, I guess, um, also seems really significant because it is imported into the new economy that's being created through the commodification of care that like that the initial generation of that the huge surge in workforce is coming in with this very specific set of cultural kind of imprint which says that like care is in fact an obligation not uh, something that is ex- something that is exchanged for something else. And that becomes one way that management in a way is able to leverage the sort of surrounding social structure uh, as a way of making it harder for uh, workers in that new economy that's beginning to emerge to actually um, form uh, the power that a, that a class has in, in the way that, that other industries uh, did. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, a lot of us kind of know this intuitively when we like think about, you know, uh, class relations and conflict in you know various kinds of like institutions in which we might find ourselves. That's certainly been true for me. Uh, you know, but I think it's like it's easy to kind of reduce the effect that you're describing, Phil, to a kind of rhetorical effect, like, you know, the invocation of obligation. And that's real. But I think it's helpful to understand the materiality of it. Yeah. Uh, and to, to illustrate this, I think it's like it's useful to, like, think of a family, actually. So if you think of a family like the one I've been describing, more or less, uh, or in the kind of van I've been described, like a white family um, in which the husband gets a job at a steel mill in 1950 at the peak of the industry. You know, and then gets married to his girlfriend. She quits her job as a waitress because, um, you know, he has this steel job now. They have a bunch of kids. Um, and then, you know, through various ups and downs, uh, he gets laid off and called back a bunch of times and whatever. Has a 25, 30 year career in the steel industry. And now we're in the late 70s. And it's time for him to retire, maybe even take an early retirement package, which is very common. And, you know, he and his wife from a lifetime working in a steel mill, living in a polluted place, enduring the kind of various, you know, physical burdens on their bodies of that experience. Um, as they head into old age, obviously their their uh, health needs are going to be increasing. And in a previous moment, you know, a lot of uh, those needs would have fallen on their daughters and daughters-in-law. However, uh, because their sons and sons-in-law cannot follow him into the steel industry, Right, because those jobs have not have ceased to be available for young men. They are instead probably looking to leave town. And there's a huge outflow of young people, in particular young men, out of Pittsburgh in, through the 70s and 80s and 90s. And so they're looking to leave town. And the daughters and daughters-in-law are saying, oh God, who's going to watch our parents if we go? Um, you know what? 
let's stay. I'll find something. I'll figure it out. And so then they have to look around in the labor market, which they're going to enter and stay in in a way that their mothers did not. And of course, what's available in the labor market? What's the one thing growing, right? It's healthcare. Uh, and, you know, having been raised in this environment, women like this will often have had experiences of being sent by their moms to check in on their grandma and feed her and change her sheets and do some basic stuff like that, volunteering at the hospital, especially if they're Catholic or something, right? That's a very common thing to do. And so they have a kind of like resume already, right? Um, in a certain way, they have a set of experiences, skills, we might say. Um, they kind of prepare them for entry into this workforce and a set of forces that make surrounding kind of family economies dependent on their ability to uh, successfully enter this workforce and hold these jobs and perform them. Um, and so basically, as you're saying, Phil, you get the kind of commodification of uh, work that was so, you know, some portion of the work that happened within the family system in an earlier moment into the healthcare industry. And instead of, you know, a steelworker's daughter or daughter-in-law taking care of him, they're taking care of a different steelworker and someone else's daughter or daughter-in-law is taking care of him. Um, and once you see it that way, I think you then see how like the political economy of like obligation and affective and emotional labor it's not just something that management says to make workers feel bad, although that's part of it. It's, um, you know, it's like got a very real material structure to it. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say the management can say whatever it wants. It, it, it can try <laughs> any number of like, but there's a reason it doesn't, you know, it chooses this tactic in part because there is a real material history of how people came to be in this line of work. At least, I mean, and actually I, I want to talk about this later, you know, uh, at least in that first um, kind of generation with the big, big spike in uh, healthcare employment. It's interesting. I don't, this is not a question I was really able to resolve is like, is that kind of um, experience produced in the post-war family and then incorporated into the, the formalized workplace, like spent down over time, which I sort of think it has been, but I can't really prove. Um, but I that also seems think to me the most like, important, I feel like that's the most, that's like the sequel, right? I mean, like or so, somebody <laughs> else, like that is probably one of the most important questions that emerges from your book is, is actually like, to what extent is that being spent down? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I do think, you know, this is connected to a discussion that's worth having about the question of the productivity of labor in the human services, which, you know, I, I mean, I am basically convinced that healthcare, like lots of forms of, you know, so-called service industries, employers have a very hard time, you know, doing the kind of basic like Adam Smithian thing of subdividing labor in ways that make it more efficient and also more amenable to mechanization such that you can provide uh, more, product for less expenditure, thereby lowering the cost over time. And that seems not to happen in like a number of different ways in healthcare. And, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think like we don't want, I mean, employers try to do that. And the consequence is that they degrade patients and workers in the experience of care provision on both sides. Yeah. Um, but they're always trying to do that because it's their only real way of, of, you know, lowering, lowering their costs and improving their margins. Um, but I think what's important about that from workers' perspective is that What's implicit in the way employers try to do that is a kind of recognition uh, or an exploitation of the elasticity of care work, right? That like actually what a given need for care consists of materially is often a little bit indeterminate. It's not that it has no, no hard content, but it often has some kind of indeterminacy to it, some kind of blurry boundaries. Like, do you always know exactly, you know, if you're like uh, sick or depressed or, uh, you know, undergoing some kind of need for care, 
do you or your caregiver always know exactly what it is that you need? No, of course not, right? Like that's what makes care a kind of complex relational thing to provide and makes the kind of provision of it elastic in a certain way, right? So there's always calculations that caregivers have to make about like, what am I going to do right now? How much effort, how much attention can I ration out, especially in a kind of capitalist, you know, ultra rationalized context. And, you know, that's a kind of very important dynamic, I think, in commodified care labor that employers exploit, understanding that workers, at least some of the time, are going to kind of do their best to not let patients suffer. Yeah, I mean, I think you talk about this in a really interesting way um, when you say that the hospital sort of becomes like in the 60s, it becomes like part of the family and it's expected to help with everything. Because what that makes me think about so much is how, you know, what the purpose of institutionalization was uh, in the first place. If you think about what sort of happens concurrent with the story that you're telling, you know, where you have this sort of growth in labor power and shrinkage within the industry and these jobs sort of go away. This is happening sort of simultaneously with the beginning of uh, state-run hospitals and asylums shrinking. And part of how they sort of shrink and, you know, how they shrink first, basically, because there's many iterations of of these sort of institutions, like so-called closing or shrinking, But, you know, these were places where people's family members who they, you know, who needed uh, care, who needed sort of indeterminate and elastic care as you're as you're describing it, you know, really the kind of help with uh, what we now call activities of daily living or ADL, like, you know, bathing, eating, uh, toileting, any of the kind of things that that require, you know, a lot of um, sort of constant attention or around the clock uh, engagement and care and things like that, not necessarily acute medical care, like in an emergency room, but like sustained long term care. You know, the, the purpose of these institutions um, really is to sort of remove people who are unproductive from the family in order to free up the family to be workers. And it's interesting to sort of contrast that with how much of the care labor is happening at home because you you don't necessarily have that pressure to send the relative to the institution if you're um, able to sort of not work and your husband's working in the steel factory like that care labor can happen at home. And the the system of asylums and institutions like in a lot of ways was sort of built up to solve the problem of, of needing to find a place to sort of take care of people in order to 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 free up people to enter the workforce or be uh, sort of uninterrupted in the workforce in some sense. And what's happening, you know, starting particularly in the 20s is that, you know, these institutions, they start to be run leaner and leaner. And the way that that happens is through the devaluation of the care work that goes into it and through trying to cut costs and um, compromise on the the wages that are sort of going into supporting um, these massive, massive populations. I mean, we're talking like institutions with thousands of people living in them where one person is sort of responsible for an entire floor and they're they're responsible for caring for like hundreds of people within an eight hour period. And, you know, this this kind of like argument emerges as part of the eugenics movement that's like, well, we can't really like afford to spend all this money on people who are never going to be rehabilitated to be like workers again. And so the way that the austerity is like applied to these institutions and that shrinkage happens is through the devaluation of 
the labor of uh, the carers inside of it and not just people who are providing sort of like care support, but also the doctors. You know, at, at one point in the early 1900s, like asylums and state hospitals are the largest employers of psychiatrists. And there are, you know, thousands of psychiatrists that are working in these institutions. And that's, you know, tens of thousands. And then like by the 1920s, you've got, you know, just a couple thousand and people have sort of left for for private practice. So that begins to emerge. And part of this is because of the development of health insurance that begins to emerge. You can have, you know, providers sort of leave the state hospitals for more lucrative um, positions in the community. But also it's that lawmakers have this imperative to try and like kind of reduce the taxpayer burden of, of these institutions by like cutting costs through labor. And so you have this precedent set that set that like if you are to try and like reduce the burden of care, that the place to go first is through both economies of scale, but also through you know, this pre-existing kind of uh, norm of devaluing the the labor that goes into it and then often blaming those those workers for the violence in the institution as if it's happening because they're bad people and not because of the circumstances of their work. And, you know, it was so fascinating to to read this book and to be sort of thinking about how in a lot of ways as Medicare and Medicaid come in in 1965, you know, and this really changes the sort of funding model and offers a lot more funding to bring care into the community and stand up things like hospitals as we think of them now and not hospitals as they were, you know, back then. But like part of the precedent for that is this, you know, 70 year history of essentially the kind of argument that like society cannot afford to pay carers and that care work is charity in some sense and that you know we we when we're looking for a place to sort of cut and and increase productivity and increase efficiency that that's the first place to look and that that sort of even in the distinction of like okay these new hospitals they're not the same as the old asylums the norms of how we treated workers in new hospitals in the hospitals that we you know know now were incredibly sort of dictated by these decisions that were made to to sort of attack the budgetary expense of the asylum system through you know processes like and this is something you also get into the book um you know the processes like like sedating patients in order to uh, make it easier to like increase the caseload on an individual worker and th- these are the kinds of things that I, I think you know it's important to sort of think about, uh, you know, the, the hospital as an extension of the family, as this kind of metaphorical uh, catch-all that's supposed to do everything. I mean, even as we talk about like modern emergency rooms, um, you know, people expect that to be kind of a place not only to get like care if you've got an acute injury, like you broke your leg, a gunshot wound, you had a stroke, but also it's a place where like, you know, people are often sent when it's too cold to sleep on the street uh, just for a hot meal. And, you know, we kind of treat hospitals still as this extension of the family and this moment also where because I think it has this kind of relationship to the norms of family and care and austerity where we can sort of extract from the people involved in it because there's this idea of like also this kind of romantic idea of like what care work is and and our obligation and why we do it. Yeah, I think that's really um I mean, there's a really kind of powerful, like grand arc of the history of of care provision and what you just said. 
I mean, I often in the book I describe and, and talking about it, I often describe the, you know, what single breadwinner family as a mechanism of privatization, which yeah. I think is confusing for people sometimes, but it like it, it in the same sense of like the privatization of public services, right? Like the kind of neoliberal thing. Um the po- post-war single breadwinner nuclear family privatizes care. That's a kind of that's one of its central political uh, effects and purposes, I would say, as part of a kind of renegotiation of the obligations of social reproduction brought about by both the New Deal and then the limits on the New Deal in kind of complicated ways. And, you know, in that way, the connection between the post-war family and the hospital is more than metaphorical, right? It's um, like they're, they're, they're really institutional cousins in a certain way. They're both organs of the private welfare state. Mm-hmm. Uh, um but then that arrangement starts to fall apart almost right away because it is organized around and rooted through a kind of employment that is actually already disintegrating by like the late 50s. Um, so that reintroduces all of these kinds of questions from the earlier period that you were just talking about. By the 70s, those are all back in different different ways. Um, so I tell the story in the book, and I think you were alluding to this, um, and I wrote a longer article about this, uh, this public nursing home. Pittsburgh, giant institution at its peak, about 2,200 beds, um, which is huge and county owned. Um, and by the seventies had become, you know, really kind of nightmare of abuse because it depended on, you know, public tax revenue, which would be devastated by deindustrialization and its patient population had grown because the patient, the number of, uh, older and disabled people who needed some kind of long-term care had also grown because of deindustrialization. Um, and so the coincidence of fiscal crisis and, uh, you know, rising demand and on this public institution then led to exactly the thing you're talking about of, you know, budget cuts leading to, uh, insufficient staff who are overworked, which then eventuates into horrific abuse. I mean, basically torture in some cases. Um, And then there's a very interesting story of the kind of political struggle that results from the exposure of this situation and the ways that actually this institution, Kane Hospital is its name, um, uh, was actually preserved as a public institution, which makes it really a kind of exception to the general rule of privatization in this this moment. But I guess the broader point that I'm making is that because the family is insufficient to contain and reprivatize the social needs and demands, both of industrial work and of the loss of industrial work. Um, that demand flows right back into the healthcare system, the worse that the industrialization becomes. And by the 70s in general, in all kinds of you know ordinary hospital, like, like tertiary care hospitals, uh, acute care hospitals, um, in Pittsburgh, what we call healthcare utilization has risen like extremely high. Um, by 1979, uh, Pittsburgh is generating uh, 1.6 inpatient days per capita that year, which is about triple our current rate of, of hospital utilization. Um, right. So if you just to break down what that means, uh, if everyone in the metro area, you know, used the hospital the exact same amount, that means in 1979, everyone would have spent a little over a day and a half in the hospital that year. Um, which is like extremely high rate. Now, of course, that's not what was happening. What was happening was like a very large proportion of people concentrated in the industrial working class 
were like using the living hell out of the system because of the ways that it could partially meet a wide set of social needs, including a kind of semi long term care function with these like really long stays long-term for not very acute, acute conditions. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and also a kind of social work and even kind of psychiatric function, sort of unofficially, but nonetheless. Um, well, definitely officially and, also, actually. I mean, also officially. Yeah, yeah. And part of this is because, you know, as Medicare and, and Medicaid shifts some of the funding models, uh, which is happening a couple decades into the clo- like the long arc of closing these uh, large state hospitals and asylums, it part of like what affects this is the kind of like counter cyclical constraints on state spending. Right. And so they become places to try and like pull funds in order to fund other things, like where there's a lot of the budget of the state going into these institutions and sort of in shrinking them, a lot of like novel policy experiments are engaged in where you have um, lawmakers being like, you know what, I really don't want responsibility uh, for you know, the abuse that is not like an exception, but is a pretty much a constant for all of these places on my uh, shoulders. And so the best sort of way to deinstitutionalize was to do these like public private partnership experiments where you're like, okay, we'll do contingent funding. So, you know, we're going to give this contract to this company to build group homes and long term care and nursing homes, often literally like on the perimeter of the old asylum. And, you know, then we'll pay them both through Medicare and Medicaid as the sort of payer for the care, um, which changes the way that people are, changes like the duration of of how long people are in these institutions or receiving long-term care, where it becomes more cyclical. You have like a kind of shift in that. But it also is like this, this um, you know, and Phil's, Phil's work is sort of like very helpful for me in terms of understanding this. So like, you know, the kind of idea of like, well, this was a, this was a, proposal to sort of deal with like state budget crisis in some ways where it's like if we're going to take this off our balance sheet kick it to the private market but sort of still give it some public funding acknowledging the fact that like you know there is no way to sort of fully privatize uh, these frameworks exactly well I, i think this is actually the i'm glad that you brought it up in that way b because i think to me the biggest takeaway from your book I mean, like one could easily like like a a surface level gloss in the on the book is like this is going to sound really dumb, but like oh, this is all very bleak, right? <laughs> uh, which it is. I mean, it is a sort of bleak. There is a bleakness to the story in the way that it it provides a a very welcome, I think, counterweight to these stories of economic renaissance in former fortresses of industrial capitalism. But at the same time, I I think one of the things that we've just sort of been talking about is the fact that this system is sort of constantly exposing its contradictions. Like many times throughout each of the decades in the latter part of the book, those contradictions come out, whether or not it's like a crisis at Kane uh, in McKeesport, or is it, you know, like what happens with uh, UPMC and Highmark uh, later on, which you don't really talk about in the book, but I think is another sort of example of another side of this um, or what uh, Beatrice is, is sort of talking about. But uh, there are all of these sort of crises that constantly get um, exposed. And like the pandemic would be another example where you see lots of exposures of this. Right. But at the same time, you have um, you know, this is where the role of the state at multiple sort of scales comes in and, and you know, 
uh, sort of smooths the path uh, through the crisis or, you know, allows the system to, to be reproduced. But, but I do think that the, the point that should come across by the end of the book is yes, this is bleak, but this system is also inherently unstable. It's like re- is producing all these contradictions. And so then the question becomes more clear uh, or becomes clarified, which is, okay, how do you actually take advantage or be able to exploit uh, those contradictions in a way that allows for the system's kind of reconstruction. And I, I sort of wonder, you know, maybe as a way of like rounding out the conversation a little bit, if you could talk a little bit about how the, how you see that happening or what you sort of uh, are sort of like looking for on the horizon in in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, I think that's a very, um, that is the reading of the book I would hope for (laughs) when you just, um, you know, um, I feel like I, I sometimes like to describe the argument of the book as the growth of the healthcare system as a way has served as a way of managing uh, contradictions in the larger capitalist political economy. Yeah. Um, and like, those, those contradictions get shunted into healthcare and cause healthcare to swell up. And in turn, I think that there is a version of that which we could see as a very, very classic kind of Marxist uh, dialectic. So like, you know, this the grand dialectic in capital, right, is um, like the contradiction between the growing socialization of labor, meaning like the growing interdependency of working class people in the, in the kind of increasingly extended and complex process of production in which, you know, I make I make a part of a shoe and you make a part of a shirt and, you know, I get hired, I get wages to do that. And then I use those wages to buy shirts and you get wages to do that. And you use those wages to buy shoes. And so, so we're dependent on each other. Right. But that dependency on the other, this is the other side of the contradiction is mediated through privately owned means of production. And so, you know, that contradiction between uh, socialization and interdependency, but privatization uh, of ownership and, and distribution then generates political possibility for Marx. And at some level, I think that's kind of, I'm telling a version of that story as, you know, still that dialectic continues. I mean, what is the care economy, if not a kind of very warped, very fucked up, but also real embodiment of our mutual interdependency, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's the way we have kind of politically negotiated that mutual interdependency uh, in extremely unequal and adverse circumstances, and the version of it that we've won are these ultra exploitative and abusive institutions that nonetheless, you know, we depend on to keep us alive in various ways. And in that process, we have created this group of people, I and mean, we as a society have created this group of people on whom the burden falls to collect keep us alive and largely they've been selected by labor market vulnerability which is to say poor women um but there's a ton of them um healthcare is the largest sector of employment in the country i should have said this at the beginning of the, our conversation it's the largest sector of employment in the country uh it continues to be growing faster than our most sectors of employment in the country home health aid has been i'm sure you've said this a million times on the podcast home health aid has been for years and will be for the foreseeable future the fastest growing job in the country and these patterns are significantly overstated in post-industrial cities, by the way. So like places like Pittsburgh and Buffalo and Cleveland and New York and Philadelphia, for that matter, have larger healthcare sectors as a result of the processes we've been talking about today. Right. Um, so in other words, I th- all of this is to say, 
you know, I think that there is a kind of uh, utopian kernel concealed and sort of suppressed it within the kind of violent and exploitative process of the expansion of commodified care, which is to say, like, more of our collective social resources are being devoted to taking care of one another in a certain way. It's just that what we, you know, what is concealed when I say our collective resources matters a lot. Um, and I do think that that gives to political struggles uh, at the conjunction of like the pr provision of care work and uh, need for care, real potential power. But that power, I mean, we haven't really figured out how to do this in a large scale way. There's obviously many individual fights over particular institutions, particular groups of workers, whatever. The source of that power is not exactly economic in the way that it was for like steel workers or something like that in a previous moment who could, you know, lay their hands more directly on like the means of accumulation and halt or interrupt that process. Um, and this is one of the ways that it's important to see different episodes in the cycle of class formation have different qualities. So a different quality, I think, of class struggle in and around care and over the conditions of providing care is that its, it's source of leverage does not really come in the same way from the possibility of like interrupting the accumulation process or not nearly as much so, and comes instead through political means in different ways. Like if we're dependent on each other, if we're dependent on care, care providers and care providers in turn need the solidarity of a broader people who depend on them, that's a kind of form of uh, social, a uh, sort of associational and political potentiality, um, which is quite hard to build. I think, like, we don't really have organizations that exactly represent uh, that kind of conjunction of interests. But it's also a lot of people who do really potentially share a lot of interests. And so, I think, for from my perspective, the kind of major political question that arises from this book is: what kinds of organizations would we need to build, and how would we build them to actually um, conjoin? the need for care that in some way all of us experience. And I think, uh, you know, in some ways more and more so as capitalism becomes more predatory and exploitative and unequal and, you know, gener like generates a kind of growing burden of debility in the population. And so to generate a conjunction between that need for the growing need for care and that growing kind of exploited workforce who provide it, that's an enormous political question, but it's the one that I, I uh, the book leads me to think we need to find the answer to. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a question quote very close to our heart here on the show. I mean, I think it's one thing we we try and foreground and and really talk about in detail and like in like an honest uh, kind of way that it isn't often talked about. I mean, when we talk about the problems of the US healthcare system, like the top line things that people normally think about are, you know, uh, healthcare costs too much. We're spending too much money. We need to lower costs. Um, obviously, like the idea of lowering costs and lowering healthcare utilization hurts both care workers and care receivers. Um, so that's that's kind of like one of those sort of frustrating frameworks that we try and work against. But another is this kind of fundamental class distinction that's supposed to exist between the sick person and the caregiver. And oftentimes, like caregivers themselves are also sick and also need care. But this kind of idea uh, and myth who, you know, ironically, you know, as I was mentioning and, and making fun of Talcott Parsons uh, earlier, you know, he's one of the people who really kind of develops um, some of the fundamental frameworks for understanding some of like 
this division between the care receiver and the caregiver um, in his book, The Social System, where he conceptualizes the sick role of like, you know, each sick person kind of being an island surrounded by healthy people. And those healthy people are responsible for like keeping the sick person from, you know, becoming a deviant and sort of, you know, thinks of like sickness as deviancy. And, you know, that I think also, you know, is really ingrained in the way that like care workers are are sort of told to think of themselves as like not, um, not able to be in a, a sort of solidarity with their patients, mm-hmm. that they're, they're mm-hmm. not able to form a collectivity with the patients. And one of the things that, you know, I think is really kind of like a project that, um, you know, I hope is like where a lot of us who are sort of doing this work are sort of moving towards is how do we find ways to build collectivity between um, and through this sort of divide that exists as a kind of membrane that's so false and artificial. I mean, you know, there are so many stories of people who are care workers who are rationing their own vital medications because they can't, um, you know, afford on their hospital salaries to buy their insulin, you know. And so what sort of separates that that person who's maybe like a radiologist with type one diabetes from the type one diabetes patient, you know, on the other side of that, that transom, right, is just the kind of the false, um, you know, mirage of this kind of sick role and social system. And I think it's a really important kind of takeaway and, and something that, you know, is very constant throughout your book, you know, is sort of showing that that these, whether it's like talking about the kind of way that class is imposed within the workplace for steel workers or within the workplace for care workers, but also these kinds of divisions that are supposed to exist um, between caregivers and care receivers is, you know, it's a, it's a really important concept to work against. I mean, if you, if you go back to like writings on sort of why the project of, you know, decommodifying care in the Soviet Union didn't work, a lot of the, a lot of the work uh, on that sort of lays the blame on like the inability to break this, this sort of fundamental divide that sort of dictates that doctor and patient or caregiver and patient like cannot be um, in solidarity with one another. And this is, I think, really sort of where we have to move towards. Yeah, that's um, I really I really agree with that. You know, I like to say when people say, well, like, how should we decrease healthcare spending? I'm always like decrease it. We should increase yeah, it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, relevant yeah. to what? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, I imagine you share or I know you guys share the kind of vision of a society in which all of us are responsible in different kinds of ways and to different degrees and with spe- different specializations and lack of specialization, but responsible to some degree in the care of one another, right? Um, and uh, we all we all need care and we all, all are implicated in its provision mm-hmm. uh, and including, you know, care for children, care for the old, care for disabled people, care for sick people who are all of us, as you say, um, in, in different variations and forms and uh you know i think that to describe a society like that is to describe a society that has undergone a radical social transformation in which not just capitalism but also race and gender would not be intact as we know them now um and so you know that's an important kind of like vision to maintain i think as a kind of horizon and then you know that's a question i think you can kind of identify valuable political struggles by like, do they take us in some way in that direction? Not, you know, whole hog or whatever. Right. But like, do they kind of build that bridge that you're describing that connection between 
those of us who need care and those of us who provide it and make those identities increasingly uh, at one or pierce the membrane yeah. between them. Um, yeah. And I think that's like a really good way of just thinking about like, what is a worthwhile political struggle? Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, I think this is actually like the absolute perfect place to leave it. Um, is there yeah. anything we didn't get a chance to get into, Gabe, that you really wanted to get a chance to talk about? No, I think we we mainly covered it. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, this has been fantastic. <laughs> I, I really have appreciated this conversation and I really appreciated reading your book and all of the work that went into it. It was um it's a great read. Highly recommend yeah. it to our listeners. I, I would agree with that. And I would also say a personal um thank you, Gabe, not only for for capturing uh huge part of my, you know, it's like familial life story, uh, like a Balzac novel or something, uh, in, in this book. But, uh, but also today on the, in the discussion, you got B to say the name of Talcott Parsons three times, which I think this is appropriate for Halloween, because if you say his name three times, like Beetlejuice, he appears. <laughs> oh no, that's true. Isn't it? God. <laughs> Motherfucking Talcott Parsons. <laughs> We're all structural functionalists now. We have no choice. <laughs> well, Gabe, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Again, Gabe's book is The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. Highly recommend you check it out. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, pre-order or order Health Communism or request it at your local library, post about your favorite episodes, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
flash of youth Shoot out of darkness Factory town 